Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. As sometimes happens with our productions, uh, episodes get posted out of order. And usually that's not a problem. However, it was a problem this last time when we released an episode with Daryl Tippins. And you may have heard mention a conversation we'd had with Emma. Well, this is that conversation with Emma. Emma is one of Cole's uh, students. She's a senior at Abilene Christian University and was kind enough to join us for a conversation about what Christians ought to be exposed to when it comes to media, literature, that kind of thing. And she was good enough to join us. I was dumb enough to put these conversations out of order. And so we released this episode a little bit early just to get it close to the episode with Daryl Tippins. So enjoy. Hey, buddy. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh. You have a guest with you today. I do have a guest. I am so excited to introduce her in just a moment. First, let me just say that the tree in Abilene, the leaves have changed colors on it. <laughs> that one tree? The one tree? Yeah. Dude, I I did uh, leaves in my backyard over the weekend, and I was just out there just now, and it looks like I didn't do leaves over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, you have neighborhood leaves. I have, yeah, I have an entire mountain, um, an entire mountain's worth of leaves have descended upon me. Well, you have no time for podcast. You need to go raking. Yeah. See y'all later. I'm going to go burn leaves. Before I introduce our guest today, Scott, let's rehearse our three tenets for our podcast. The first of which is being that we, that sacred cows make great barbecue. Delicious. We'll scoff at orthodoxy whenever we wish. And I think there are going to be some sacred cows in this episode. Goody. I really do. But the second tenet is that we fly our flag proudly. Uh, we will argue vigorously for our point of view as long as we decide we have it. That's right. But number three, and our guest is Emma. Emma needs to hear this part, too, <laughs> that we are bros and sisters before politicos. That's and right. Brothers first and sisters first. And everything <laughs> else is just details. That's right. So Scott and I often have robust arguments over things about which he's primarily wrong, but uh, we are brothers first. So we never let that interfere with the fact that he comes over to my house and eats my food and I go to his house and borrow his yeah, stuff. A shared love for everything Seinfeld, Hawaii coffee and 80s music doesn't hurt. But that's, right. that's about all we share. That's right. I am thrilled to introduce our guest today, Scott, um, Emma Knatzer. Hi, Emma. Hey. Emma is a wonderful young woman, and I'm going to really embarrass her now, so just oh, get no. ready, Emma. She <laughs> is a senior at Abilene Christian. She is a double major in music and English. She is a mezzo-soprano who <laughs> sings beautifully. She is one of the best students I've ever had. Aww. One of the best students our department has ever seen. She's very smart and I love talking with her about things. And she and I had a wonderful discussion that started yesterday that went along with um, uh, with discussions I've been having for a year with people. 
actually more than a year. And I thought, you know what? Instead of trying to discuss this just one at a time with smart students, I think we should add this to our podcast. So this is not an idea that was hatched overnight for today's podcast. It was one that has been building up and building up. And I thought, if Emma cannot help this be discussed, no one can. So no pressure. Wow. Emma. Wow. What a glowing. <laughs> Emma, tell us where you're from. Okay. Um, I... I'm originally from California. I went to high school in Georgia, and now I live here in Texas. What part of uh, Georgia? Savannah, Georgia. Okay. On the coast. Yeah, so kind of from all over. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think this is a really interesting question. Okay, well, before we get there, tell okay. us two more things about okay, yourself. Okay. Tell me um, why English and music. Both of those are pretty full degrees, so mm -hmm. most people do not <laughs> double major in music and something else. That's right. That's why you? Um, I really enjoy music. I enjoy singing. I enjoy learning about music. And I don't know. I just couldn't quit it quite after high school. I think maybe after college I'll be ready to let it go. But <laughs> I do uh, really enjoy it. And I think uh, I think English and music go really nicely with one another. They're just so similar in so many ways. I think a lot of music majors could really stand to benefit a lot from an English degree. <laughs> okay. I, I agree with her. And so let's all double major in English and music. <laughs> and to that end, Scott, once again, something I didn't tell Emma, one of the things that we're going to put in our show notes this week is a link to an evening at the Oxford Folk Club where Emma <laughs> and I sang a song by Nancy Griffith called Gulf Coast Highway. And the Oxford Folk Club loved it. It was so fun. And Emma, Emma did real well. It's the saddest song in the world. <laughs> It's pretty sad. It's sad. Uh, we were with a, a semester abroad in Oxford when that happened. Okay. <clears throat> the subject of today's show is Christianity and the approach to arts or entertainment or some kind of title like that. And this is the way I want to enter into this. When students enroll in the master's program in English at ACU, they are required to take comprehensive exams. The comp exams have two sections. The first section is on the student's academic interests. So some segment of literature, some segment of rhetoric, perhaps writing program administration, something the student has really been grooving to during the two years that uh, he or she has been here. The other comprehensive exam is one that we use to make our program pretty unique, and that is a comprehensive exam area called faith and literature. And it is inevitable, we have a, a reading list for students to choose from, but it is inevitable that they often enjoy choosing a book that uh, we put a link in our show notes to by Alan Jacobs called A Theology of Reading, The Hermeneutics of Love. Now, this is a big book, and I don't want to reduce it too much right here, but the reason I'm setting things up this way is because how I use it in the comps process. Among many things that Alan Jacobs argues, he argues that we should view books as our neighbors, that a Christian hermeneutic is viewing books as our neighbor. And how are we to treat our neighbors, Emma? With love. With love. That's right. So... Inevitably, our master's students during that comps process will spend part of their essay talking about how we should treat books with love, we should hold them without prejudice when we 
encounter them either in the bookstore or on Amazon, or perhaps it's not a new book, but an old book, and we should approach it like we approach a neighbor with love. And after the student has has turned in the essays, then the committee gets to ask questions. And I sit and wait my turn, and I do this every time, and when they say, Dr. Bennett, do you have any questions for the candidate? I say, yes, I do. You have written here that we should treat books as neighbors with love, without prejudice and so forth. Um, how should we treat Fifty Shades of Grey? Should we hold that book up as a neighbor that we love and try to find? Re and, and always the, the student will say, well, I don't think that it would extend there. And I would say, how about Playboy magazine? That's a book. Should we hold that up without prejudice and say, this is a book worthy of our examination? Or should we say, this is filth, or this is profanity, or this is unworthy of my holding it as I would regard a neighbor, and it is absolutely worthy of me casting it aside and saying, what is the next book? So this is the discussion that we always get into during comprehensive exam discussions. And so... The question then becomes, to what degree, the, the, because the candidate will always say, well, Fifty Shades of Grey and Playboy magazine do not have a redeeming value. There's nothing in those books that's worth, re, that's worth it. And I will say, okay, so are we talking about a Christian perspective that says, if a piece of fiction, whether it's film or book, or short story, if it has a redeeming quality, is it worth any journey to get there, even if the journey is filled with things we would ordinarily associate with profanity? So that is how I want to prop up this discussion, because Emma and I were talking about this yesterday, and Scott, I have talked about this with many candidates over the years, and with you to some degree, and I'm the question I think we are arriving at is that is a is the journey of a piece of art worth any sorry the question is is the is the end of any journey worth the journey itself to a christian when it comes to art or entertainment that's where i will stop talking and invite either of you to chime in i don't know i think this is interesting because we're asking essentially like is the juice worth the squeeze like is it worth <laughs> is it I worth, like that you know like is <clears throat> is the end product worth the journey getting there and even if the journey is riddled with profanity and i think we could spend a lot of time discussing what profanity is and discussing what filth is and discuss you know all those things but i think in the end we've got a much more like as as tough as those discussions might be, I think we have a much more clear understanding of that than what the juice is. What are what what are we trying to get to? Is the art worth the journey through the filth to get to the art? Well, what is the art? Is the art I, I think we need to agree on that before we can agree on what filth is, because what I think art is might not be you know what I'm saying? Like I might find something to be artful. And therefore, I find any journey to it worth it. But you might not consider something artful. And so you think no journey to it is worth it, even if it isn't strewn with profanity. And I want to say, when we, 
I think Emma and I are talking about capital P profanity, not little p, like not merely curse words, but things that are mm-hmm. profane. Yes. Okay. Why not? Why not what? Why not curse words? Why aren't those part no, of the deal? Curse words well. included, not merely curse oh, words. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So let's take uh, uh, Cole's favorite example, uh, uh, Emma, is piss Christ. I was thinking of that this morning. When we were, were you really? Yeah. Yeah. Cole thinks about piss Christ a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, uh, is there something on the other side of that that we're aspiring to artistically, right? Mm-hmm. As an audience trying to understand, and is it worth uh, seeing an image of the cross in a in a jar of urine? I think that yeah, that is sort of what we're getting at. And what? people, I think a lot of initial viewers of that piece do they know that it's urine you know when you initially approach it maybe you don't and so when you find out that it is urine does that like cheapen it for you i don't know i think this christ is like a special example or a good example yes and and this well you may not agree with this but i really think an observation of a piece of 3d or 2d art fine art is different qualitatively from reading a book that has two or three hundred pages to see if there's something at the end. Like I can say, that's piss Christ, that's offensive to me, I'm gonna turn my gaze toward the Mona Lisa. But to pick up 50 Shades of Grey, and I, I, I wail on 50 Shades of Grey, I wail on it, to say this is a huge book that I have to trudge through if I'm going to read the whole thing just to see if there's something redeeming. And I I think there's an argument to be made that it's not it is not worth it for Christians. Um, Emma and I were talking about, um, there's there's a course we teach here at ACU in our English department called Contemporary World Literature. And <laughs> I don't know if you've read any contemporary world literature lately, Scott, but um, there there's some I think that's really good and there's some that I think is really bad. And the current, we can talk about it, the current item that Emma was reading in her class was called Normal People. Normal People. Normal People. Rooney. Scott, do you know this book? No. It's by an Irish author. Sally Rooney. Sally Rooney. It's quite an Irish name. And we were just talking about whether it was a good book or not. And Emma was, well, tell us about, uh, describe the book. Not the plot, but maybe. I don't know. I, (laughs) so Normal People came out in 2018 and it was met with a lot of acclaim and it's won a lot of awards. Um, It's about a young boy and girl who fall in love at Trinity College, not at Trinity College, but it takes place largely at Trinity College, and it's just sort of like walking through the highlights of their relationship, and it's been really, it's been received really well, but I find, I don't know, I don't, I'm not loving it, and so I'm sort of, there are parts of it that I just think are cheap and clunky, but whatever, um, and so Dr. Bennett was asking me if there are pieces, if the reason that it's not just like a win, a great book, is because there are so many scenes of graphic sexuality. And I don't know that that's necessarily what's keeping it from quality to me. As you guys are talking, I'm thinking about two films. Uh, and and I think this kind of fits in the category of literature for me. Um, the Passion. I knew you were going to go there. And The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, yeah. Um, one I can't stand, and the other I love with all my heart. I think the last temptation of Christ is 
it, it forces you to ask some really, really deep questions. And so the image of Jesus being tempted uh, or being exposed to the realities of, of sexuality and all of that stuff, to me, it's worth, it's worth the squeeze. Um, but the last temptation for me, speaking for me, it feels gratuitous and, um, and explores kind of the, the illicit graphic violence for the sake of the violence itself and for the sake of the shock itself, which I don't find as useful. And so one uh, is oftentimes treated, the, the last temptation of Christ is often treated as heresy. I, I mean, the reason I saw that movie, Emma, was because when I was a student, I think I was a junior at ACU, uh, that film came out and the students were all going down to protest it. Um, at the movie theater, but I thought, well, did anybody see it? And they said, no. <laughs> so I went and watched it. It was the best movie I ever saw. Uh, and then, uh, but, but then conversely, you know, when, when, um, when the passion came out, I was working in ministry and people and, and, and movie theaters were selling out because entire churches were buying tickets, you know, for their entire congregation to go down and watch it. So very, very different attitudes toward two different films from, uh, I guess, uh, from the corporate sense, from the, from the corporate church sense. But um, I had two different reactions to, to those. And I, I wrestle with trying to understand by what lights one, one thing should be accepted and the other should be rejected. I, I, I struggled to figure out what those lights are for me. I don't know that I have a good sense of it. Conversely, like I'll I'll watch I'll watch most anything if I feel like it has some it is it can be as real as it needs to be as long as I feel like it has some value if it calls me to the angels of my better nature or causes me to reflect on some aspect of history or experience but if it feels gratuitous and, and I kind of feel that way about Piss Christ. It just feels gratuitous. I don't know that I don't know that it causes me to ask deeper questions or or to be reflective or to appreciate something. And so I don't I I I struggle to figure out why that why that doesn't work for me. Okay, I'm gonna push you on that in front of Emma. Right here in front of Emma. <laughs> are you saying that if you are finding a redeeming, uh, redeeming elements in the plot that you find um, beautiful or aesthetically worthwhile. That any journey is worth it. Uh, I will accept a lot more than you will. I to think get somewhere. Everyone, I was going to say, I don't know how much of a <laughs> Scott. I have got to tell you and the listeners the funniest thing that happened, and I don't think that Emma thinks this is as funny as I do. But she was preparing for her honors thesis or your your capstone project. The World War II. Yeah, my honors thesis. Honors thesis. Emma's an honor student, right? And uh, it was gonna. It is an analysis of the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. And one of her professors, whom she was soliciting to be on her committee, said, "Hey, don't ask Dr. Bennett because he won't <laughs> like it." I mean, I am known as a capital P prude, even to my own colleagues. Like, there's no point asking him. He's not going to watch that movie. And, okay, so that's really funny to me. But I just really want to, I just want to, I really want to investigate this because 
I said to Emma the other day, in 1980, the thought of high school students watching something like Game of Thrones or Orange is the New Black or some streaming series that is laced with, rife with, uh, plentiful, has plentiful explicit graphic sex scenes would be, uh, it would be alarming. Do you agree, Scott, in the 80s as a child of the 80s? And now it is extremely common. Do you remember when, um, what was the name of that that cop show of in the 90s where he saw somebody's rear end? Hill Street Blues. Yeah, and it just was, that was the big, big, big deal is somebody, somebody's <laughs> butt got showed on TV. And, yeah, and so I think, you know, culture is moving and we're moving with it. And that's why I'm trying to like throw up my hands in alarm and say, at a Christian university, do we not have a responsibility to look for a line and say we're not going to cross it? No. I don't think we have that responsibility to look for a line and determine whether we're going to cross it. Uh-uh. That's the wrong metric for me. Okay. Was that too harsh? No, say more. And then I'm going to respond because I've been talking a lot. Um, no, I, I don't want a line. First of all, if you're going to draw the line on sexuality, I have problems because I think the line, ought, I, I would much rather talk about the line of violence than the line of sexuality. I think there are much more severe dangers um, of allowing gratuitous violence over, you know, whatever, uh, whatever impurities I think, uh, you know, we worry about in reference to sexuality. I'm not. I, th I think that's silly to worry about nearly as much as we ought to really think about violence. And yet, on the other hand, I don't think there should be a line for violence either, because I think the question ought to be, uh, to what end are you experiencing um, experiencing these narratives? To what end? Because I think the end matters. It does justify means when it comes to art. Emma, your thoughts? I don't know. I think that it is interesting that a lot of times these discussions do center around like what is too far sexually. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when people are talking about profanity or filth or things of that nature in books and film, they're not talking about violence. They are talking about like sex scenes specifically. Yep. And so I think, yeah, like thinking about gratuitous violence is important as well. And I think that there are a lot of implications of gratuitous violence that we don't often consider. But I, I agree. I don't know that there is a line per se. I don't know that there is a universal line. And if there is, I don't know that it's the Christian university's place to find it. I think it's, I think it's a lot more individual than that. I think I don't mind. I don't mind the church engaging in conversations about it. I do think when you talk about Christian university, that's the part, the university part's the one that scares me about sheltering students from content because it's, it breaks some rule that, that we have arbitrarily set that is frankly going to be Cole, as you have already admitted, I think it's going to be cultural. It's not going to be, um, driven by text right things emma has said previous to now okay well then scott and emma how should contemporary world literature look different here from university of texas how should it be any different i don't know that we should be reading different texts than they're reading at ut but i don't i think that we're 
I think we're approaching them with a different set of values, maybe. Maybe not a completely different set of values, but we're approaching it from a faith-based understanding, you know? Like, we're, we've got this, theoretically, students at ACU have this, like, they've laid the groundwork of their faith before they receive these texts, and that groundwork is informing how they, how they, the way they intercept with these texts. Students at non-faith-based universities whose professors aren't concerned with looking at the way faith intercepts with the texts aren't necessarily going to have that interception. You know, maybe they'll have it on their own. Maybe they've got their own religious tradition that they're intercepting texts with. But at a Christian university where the professors are Christian and students are, in theory, have some faith background, I think we're looking a lot more at the way faith and contemporary world literature intersect than other universities might. I, I actually appreciate, Cole, that you all talk about Helen Jacobs. I appreciate it. I don't think that Alan Jacobs provides a comprehensive Christian hermeneutic for interpreting literature. It's incomplete at least. At least. But I think, I think a inviting students to consider that lens, you know, what agape looks like as a hermeneutic and then uh, exploring and testing its limits is, uh, is ultimately Christian education. And so there is a part of, of having that as, as part of the, um, you know, the examination process makes me very, very pleased as a Christian scholar. It makes me pleased to think about our students interacting with questions of what are virtues, what virtues uh, are important to us, and how do we understand the limitations of those virtues um, as we interact with the world around us. That's that's the question. It's not that you come up with some apodictic answer. It's that you engage in that exploration and we provide students a way to do that. That is rigorous. That is, um, that is driven by inquiry and that is willing to uphold virtues while asking questions about them. Okay. So I think what I'm hearing you say implicitly in what you just said, Scott, is something I heard Emma say explicitly earlier from this podcast, which is encountering profanity or what some would call profanity is encountering the world and there's no escaping it. Nor should we escape, nor should we want to escape it. I'm I'm losing every bit of this. Okay. You are someone who works very actively to escape profanity or to avoid, you know what I'm saying? Like you've, but I promise, I promise you've encountered it, you know? Sure. Yeah. So like, despite your attempts, despite the way you've closed yourself off to profanity in your own entertainment, you're still going to find it. Yes. I don't think that that fact should cause me to then turn to it. No, but. Oh, okay. Talk more about that, Cole. What do you mean by turn to it? I am quite aware that there are pieces of entertainment and novels and whatever films that other people find entertaining and might find um, a nice, a a well-written plot that has some redeeming. Um, If it's rated NC-17, I'm not interested. If it's rated R mostly, I'm not interested. 
because I, I don't want to deem it worth my while to, to sit and, and give it, um, give my mind's attention to it for that long to find out if I find something redeeming in it. I feel like I'm repeating myself, so I don't want to do that. No, that, I, I, but, but you said turn to it. So it seems that it seems by having said that, that you think that there are some of us um, who pursue it or at least don't filter it. Hey, you know what? I think that's biblical, though. I think it's biblical to say the things that you spend thinking about, the things that you spend your attention on are things that get inside you. Yes. I don't think that's crazy. I think that's biblical. By the way, I said before this podcast that I'm I'm exploring this right now. I turned off the news a year and a half ago. I stopped watching news. And it's because of Philippians chapter four. Whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is noble, think on these things. And I didn't quote it accurately, but you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason Paul is saying that to the church in Philippi is the only way that Yodi and Synthike are going to start getting along is if they start thinking about the the lovely things and stop stop worrying about the stuff that's around them. Because in the previous paragraph, he says, don't worry about stuff. And, And I think that what's happening for the church is that they're not getting along because they're worried about stuff. And the reason I think this is important is as I was watching the news, I'm letting the, I'm, I just know my blood. I was, first of all, I was watching seven, eight hours a night. And I know my blood pressure was just through the roof the entire time about all the terrible, terrible, terrible things that are happening and, and who's responsible and what do I need to be on uh, in, in vigilant about next. And I realized that stuff is messing with my brain about the way I think about my neighbor. And that, is not acceptable to me. So I, uh, listen, dude, I, I think we got to talk about this. I'm not sure that literature is the problem, but we got to talk about this. But isn't it? Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying, I'm not sure. What is literature? It's things written down. That's, you know, that's really the, the literal meaning of it. And I, 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 yes, we do need to talk about it because I just don't see a big difference between something that's aesthetic in this sense, there are differences, but in what we're talking about, something that's aesthetic and something that is rhetorical, arg- rhetorically argumentative. I just think people- worrying about I just think worrying about what is sexy and what's not sexy is the wrong metric. It's not just about. I know, sex. I know. <laughs> okay, okay. So Scott, you as a faculty member at ACU, and Emma, you as a senior literature student, how would you react to a student? who walks in and sits down and says, hey, I read this assigned novel. I found it wholly profane, and I'm offended that you asked me to read it. Mm. Yeah. What would you say to a classmate who presented normal people that way? I don't know. I'd probably think they were a little bit of a prude, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) How was the Mayflower's ride over? Uh, I know. Okay, well, so I think that if a text... I think that if a text is being assigned, it's it's done and it's not done offhandedly. That's my point too. Yeah, and so I kind of feel like the authority of the professor who assigned it, the authority of the institution that assigns the text, outweighs one classmate's disgust for me. Yeah, and I don't know if that's rude. I know that if personally I were offended by a text. 
I don't know if I would be because I think I would have placed my trust in the authority of the institution. Oh, that's dangerous. I know. Uh, I know. No, I, I hear what you're saying. Okay. And like, uh, even this normal people book, like I don't love it, but I have to, I have to just like concede that there is something that I'm not getting or there is something like there is value in it that I'm not seeing. See, Emma, this is the, this is the part that makes me proud as a faculty member to hear what you're saying. It's not so much that you're treating it with an, with a hermeneutic of agape, which it, but, but rather that you're approaching the text with a kind of epistemic humility. Is it that I don't understand something? Is that why I'm not get? am I not getting it? That kind of um, epistemic humility, I think is really um, noble. And it needs to be something, Cole, when you were saying this student says, this offends me and I can't read it because it offends me. Oh, that kind, it. huh? He read it. Let's say that he read it, but yes. says, I you was signing it to me. Right. Well, then I, I think I think the reason that I feel uh, my blood pressure starting to rise, first of all, I had I just had this last term with a student. I signed them a, a, a project. The project is I don't know if I should say this out loud. I, I'm not naming the student, so I can say it. I can talk about it. the project is that you're supposed to define something that uh, is important to you and write a paper called Here I Stand. And they, they do that. But then the next assignment is write a paper that's called Here They Stand. And this is call the Rosarian thing that you and I practice all the time. And so his argument in the first paper was that Jesus rose from the dead. There is plenty of evidence and reason to believe this. And I said, okay, but listen here, you've got an assignment in two weeks where you're going to make the opposite claim. So you want to go this way. This is what your opposite claim is going to be. And the student was uh, texted me the night the assignment was due and said, I have a this violates my conscience. This assignment violates my conscience because you're asking me to argue that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. That frustrates me. If you can't understand the value of thinking through something that's different than the way you think, that frustrates me. As an educator, it really frustrates me as a Christian educator because I think that's what we've got to be able to do is understand our neighbors. I don't think we have to necessarily agree with our neighbors, but we have to be generous to them. And we have to have enough epistemic humility that we don't necessarily know what is good and what is what is valuable. And we have to we have to be uh, willing to go into things in an uncorruptible way. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I'm really talking I'm talking about more s- surface level things that would appeal to the Philippians passage, not the. Can I for a moment imagine how an atheist would argue against the resurrection narrative? I agree. In other words, I agree with you completely. I think we're talking about two different things. I I don't know that we're talking about two different things. I think that they are a piece of one another. I think they share the same fundamental warrants, which is, do I participate in things that will potentially lead me down a path that I may or may not want to be down? Am Am I being corrupted is the question, right? Am I being corrupted by this, by by reading this literature? Well, you know, I'll go back to my argument about what people watched in 1980 versus what they're watching now. I think it's hard to imagine that death by a thousand cuts or some other metaphor that talks about incremental change. Scott's shaking his head vigorously. I'm, let me tell you something. We We finally got around to having conversations about whether sexual harassment is okay in the workplace. And Cole, we only did that when we got to having conversations about sexuality. 
One of the things, one of the consequences of figuring out how to have these conversations about sexuality in the public square, and frankly, this is one of the things that frustrates me about Christians is we didn't help that conversation. But the world found out how to have that conversation by having a more a more discourse about sexuality than we'd had before. And the, it's not, I don't think that it's just um uh, just a correlation. I think it is a causal relationship between those conversations and the increasing awareness that we have had over the past 20 years about the ways that we uh, uh, have marginalized uh, or sexualized women in the workplace. We, those, those two things go hand in hand. Yes, but I don't see many of the books that are being assigned in a contemporary world lit class as railing against the objectification of women. Mm, I don't know. I think talking about it, I think the literature forces us to consider things about whether we're okay with this. Yes, yes, but it doesn't have to be profane literature. Is all that's really all I'm saying. I know. For, I know. You're right. You're that. right. You're right. You could do this. You could do this unprofanely. You can, and I want to give you a great example, if I may. Emma, before you were born, <laughs> before you were born. No one ever, ever, ever discussed in Christian circles homosexuality. There were those the, those other types of people, and there were these types of people. And they, what caused that to happen was the AIDS epidemic. And there was a movie that came out called Philadelphia with Denzel Washington. And Changed everything. Very, very skinny Tom Hanks. And it, I mean, he had a lover. It was plain. But that movie turned the cultural tide in some ways that you cannot imagine if you didn't live through it. That's right. It it was, it was, yeah, it was culture changing. It was a culture changing moment. It was stunning and it did it. I mean, it it was a heavy theme, but I having watched it, it didn't strike me as profane at all. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but there were no graphic scenes of this or that. No, but the but it was received as graphic because of the subject matter. The yes. subject matter was illicit. Yes, and so perhaps perhaps we're down to a definition of profanity, which I, right. I I can. That's kind of where Emma and I got. But she then blew my mind by saying, "Well, does it matter if profanity is something that we find on the journey to art? Does it matter defining profanity as as much as it matters defining what art is?" Yeah, I think you're. I think you're onto something there. I think you're on to something, Emma, when you say, uh, kind of unpack that a little bit. Okay, so so let's think of A Tale of Two Cities. That's a pretty generally accepted, like, good book, just like a standard classic good book. And if we're thinking about A Tale of Two Cities and about the narrative there and about all the things going on in it, overall, it has a lot of redemption. There is some sadness. There is there's certainly, I mean, it's not, like, obscenely graphic, but there there's mentions of, like, graphic violence and stuff. That book, I would say, like, the juice is worth the squeeze there. Mm. And then we take a book like, we'll take Normal People, which I don't know that y'all have read, but that's, I mean, it's a fine book. Certainly hasn't reached the acclaim <laughs> of Tale of Two Cities. It's fine. It's, it's not. <laughs> it's fine. It's not. I, I don't know that comparing the two. But Normal People has got several scenes of pretty graphic sexuality. If there were as many scenes of graphic sexuality in A Tale of Two Cities as there are in Normal People, 
Would A Tale of Two Cities be any less worth reading? Would its aesthetic quality be any lower? And if it would be any lower, would it be not worth reading at all? So actually, um, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but we actually are having those very conversations about some of the works in our canon. Huck Finn, where Huck Finn was not, Huckleberry Finn was not received as offensive in its time. Uh, but because of the language and not just the language, but because of language and because of the worldviews that are reflected in that language, it's harder, I think, to understand that as a, a great work anymore. Right. Uh, and in fact, many institutions don't teach it and don't allow it to be taught anymore. Right. So it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think if, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If we're going to say this is profane, then we can't defend these formerly great works and say they are, but they're not profane because they were of a time. Well, okay, that doesn't work. Yeah. But also, if we're going to say profanity is a way of understanding the world, then then what was uh, acceptable and has become profane is probably something that we will want to look at within that same vein, right? It's it's sticky. Yeah, because I would I would. As as much as I would be feel comfortable about assigning certain works, I'm not an English prof, but if I would be fine about um, uh, demanding that students watch or talk watch a film and suggest and assign it, but I would never assign Huck Finn mm. because I I don't know. So it goes both it goes it goes both ways, and it's a tough it's a tough question. I. I I guess the hill I would die on is that a Christian at a faith-based university especially has some sort of responsibility to think about whether every nook and cranny of the world is worth examination. And Scott, I hear you saying, if it's got university attached to it, you don't get that right. I hear that. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you don't get to make the rule. I don't think you get to have a hard and fast rule, but Cole, listen, I think you should. No, I, I think you should engage in that conversation with your students. Okay. That's one thing, but if there is a, if there is a novel about a brother and a sister who have an incestuous relationship, should I say, well, that's a corner of the world. Let's explore it. Or should I say, you know what? Not worthy of my attention. If there's a book on a a pedophilic relationship, you know, can I say that's a corner of the world that people experience? Let's move on. You know, I, and and lest people who are listening to this, both of them, uh, lest they think that I only leave my office to go teach between prayers and the rosary. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have assigned books like Slaughterhouse Five. I think the Slaughter, Slaughterhouse Five helps people understand World War Two better than yeah. any book I've ever read. But boy, it, it has stuff in it. Yeah. But I had to think about it. I really had to think about it, and I routinely assign. Why did you? Uh, why, did, why did you get there? Why did I get there? Uh, because I felt that I hate to make a quantity argument, but I'm like, for what the payoff of this book, page by page, chapter by chapter, is worth. The uh, the small amount of profanity and the he's go, a man losing his mind having a having a sexual encounter. It's pretty tame, 
in my opinion, it's not in each chapter like normal people. Yeah. And so it's it's to me, I made a qualitative judgment about the book, partially based on quantity. So you got to Emma's test, which is you got enough juice for the squeeze. But I approached it from a Christian standpoint, too, thinking, can I in good conscience do what Emma said, which is use the imprimatur of the, I never get to use that word, <laughs> of the university and my class saying, this is a book worthy of the signing. And I, I, I think I have the responsibility to think that way. I realize this is a minority viewpoint. I'm especially realizing it now. But I, <laughs> but I think it's worth talking about. I appreciate this. And I want to make a claim here that I think the, the discourse is more valuable than the decision. Hmm. I think the, the, the dis, having students interact with literature uh, in ways, and, and I would, I broaden that to art as well. I'm having them. And, and we had this conversation, I'm sure you and Dan have talked about, you know, the history of nakedness and art appreciation. And there was a lot of art we didn't see in art appreciation. We didn't appreciate when I was a student (laughs) and undergraduate because, you know, because of the standard and what that meant is we didn't have those discussions. I would much rather, I would so much rather that a student engage with something um, like catcher in the rye in Cole's class especially a Christian student, than to experience Catcher in the Rye at UT. Mm. Because I think you're going to provide a conversation that we need to have around Catcher in the Rye. And I'll say the same thing about a lot of literature. It doesn't, it's not, it's not that I, I, I'm not interested in having a conversation about banned books. I mean, I'm not interested in having conversation about um, how we talk about that stuff with each other. And the fact that my friend is talking to a student here on our podcast, it's, it just makes me proud of what we are doing in Christian education. Y'all's conversation makes me proud. Mm-hmm.